Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everybody. It is that time again from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. And today on The Breakdown, she ran for the Democratic State Party chair two years ago. Her slogan, unbought and unbossed. Kimberly Ellis lost that race by 62 votes, an election that left a very bitter taste for many party activists on both sides, we should say. And now, after the winner of that election has resigned in controversy, Kimberly Ellis is running for chair of the party again. And she's going to be joining us to talk about the party's future in California, how she wants to guide it if she wins that election. But first, Marisa, kind of a big day in Sacramento. Uh, The uh, fate of hundreds of bills decided in the appropriations committees in the Senate and the Assembly. The suspense. Suspense suspense file. Not very transparent process, you might say, but a lot got done. Uh, One of the bigger news items, I think you'd have to say, is that SB 50, Scott Wiener's bill to increase housing density around transit centers and job hubs, uh, did not make it out. It's going to become a two-year bill. Uh, And a lot of people were looking at that as really an essential cornerstone of building more housing and getting to the the kinds of housing levels we need. And uh, it, there's a lot of opposition. To it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key thing here is that, you know, as often happens in housing debates, you have a, a sort of interesting alliance of folks, um, of course, on one side, developers, and, and I think a lot of big city mayors who really feel like their cities are taking the brunt of our housing crisis. Um, but a lot of other more suburban areas did not like this one whit. And environmentalists I mean, also sometimes not so happy. And, oh, yeah. you know, some of the unions, uh, you know, spent some labor. Yeah. But I think, you know, that to me, that's what's interesting. I think that those issues with the labor and stuff are, are, are actually things that could be surmountable. I think that you're going to go to places like Marin and Orange County and they are never going to like this idea of the state telling them to increase density. But then, like, you know, we like to get into the politics, Scott. And I think what's most fascinating. Well, two two things here. One is where's the governor? And the other is, where's the pro tem of the Senate? Because they have both said that housing is one of their top priorities, and they effectively let a committee chair, appropriations uh, chair Anthony Portantino in the Senate, I mean, he wanted to kill this bill, so I guess maybe Tony Atkins, the Senate president, stopped him from doing that, but it's yeah. not a win for Well, no, it's not. And, of course, Governor Newsom, uh, candidate Newsom, made a big deal out of uh, a very audacious goal of uh, 3.5 million units of housing over the next uh, eight years or so. And uh, you can't do that without you know breaking some eggs, really. You've got to make some changes. The current zoning system and the CEQA reviews and all those things really need to be changed. And, you know, we talk about the politics and, yeah, where was the governor? Where was Tony Atkins? But, you know, even in San Francisco, which is, you know, all about building affordable housing, there was a lot of, yeah, I mean, there was a lot but of resistance. That, but that's actually, I think, the key here is that everybody has a different idea of what that means. And the debate in San Francisco that often occurs is between the sort of, 
I'm going to get in trouble for making labels here, but let's say the progressive left and the more moderate Democrats and the moderate Democrats say it's all about supply and you need to let the markets do this. And the left says, no, 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 government needs to step in. And I think maybe as a lot of debates happen, there's some truth probably in the middle of both of those things. But it was never a slam dunk. There's a lot of anger. You know, people on the side of renters advocates who feel like Scott Wiener is only doing this to kowtow to developers and that people would get displaced. You know, he did try to get at that. But there's a couple of the bills we should talk about. One of them is a <laughs> yes. water, water tax. Bill. And this was another alleged priority. priority of the governor. And it got whacked by the Senate, a Senate Budget Committee. Yesterday. Governor wanted to have a fee on water for uh, users, ranchers, growers, and so on to uh, help fund what he called, I think, a moral outrage, uh, which is that about a million people in California do not have clean drinking water. He talked about it in a state of the state address. Uh, but, you know, he wanted to do it with that fee. So it would be a secure, ongoing source of funding. And uh, Budget Subcommittee took that tax out and uh, they want to do it out of the general fund, create a fund uh, with SB 200, I think it is, uh, Bill Monning's bill. Which begs the question, who's, who's not going to get it? the money? Yeah, because if you it. take money, it's like it's, it's just like your bank account, guys, the general fund. If you pay for one thing, you can't pay for another. Um, again, I think an interesting political question, you know, the knock we have heard in Sacramento on this administration is that they're a little unfocused, they want to do too much, and the question had been, will, where will they spend their political capital? And so far... Now these are two priorities of the governor that are not going anywhere. Now, look, the budget is still coming. There's a lot of time in the session. You can always get an amend and do a lot of other things. But I think that this is sort of a warning shot by lawmakers to the governor that, you know, if he doesn't step up and say and lead on some things, they're not going to make their their members take these tough votes that could put them in a tough situation right. come the next election. Right. And, you know, to ask legislators to pass a tax, even a small one, when there's a $22 billion surplus is, you know, that's a hard, that's a big ask. And then I think you have to, I'm sure it wasn't lost on some legislators that Governor Newsom is out touring the state this week. He was in San Francisco today talking about prescription drugs. Uh, he's going, I forget where he's going off penalty, LA, you know, death penalty tomorrow, stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, when it's crunch time, you have to be around. And now, obviously, you have staff to do that right. as well. But uh, it, it is his name was on these priorities. And so we'll see what happens. One other thing uh, we have to talk about is that it was uh, the, the Trump administration also kind of stuck it to California today, canceling $929 million for high-speed rail, saying that they uh, the state has failed to comply with the federal agreement. Now, the governor quickly calling that illegal. That money had been approved. Uh, but they say the Trump administration, that they're going to try to claw back not just the money that was unspent, but the other $2.5 billion as well. I'm sure they're going to have a legal fight on their hands there. Yeah. What are we, what are we at? 50 lawsuits now? I, th I see a 51st coming um, by yeah, yeah. <laughs> Attorney General Becerra. But, you know, I think that this is such a messy situation. The state has not handled this project well. The governor has not messaged on it well. There was a lot of confusion when he came out earlier this year and said, we're doing it, but we're not doing it totally. Um, and I think that left an opening for longtime critics, which Let's be fair. It's not just the Trump administration. Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader from Bakersfield, has always had it out for this project. And quite frankly, Obama's Department of Transportation had raised a lot of these concerns previously. So I think the question now is if it goes to court, A, like if you already appropriated this money, does the Trump administration, if Congress did, have the ability to take it back? And then B, yeah, how how 
how did they cross their T's and dot their I's in terms of taking this money back? And does it look just political or is there an actual policy legal argument for yeah. it? Yeah. And we know that Kevin McCarthy, the now minority leader from Bakersfield, uh, has had hit this train in his sights for a long time. Very big critic of it. Um, but, you know, again, you have to think you know, if you look at the governor's Twitter feed. You're seeing him criticizing, the, the, if not by name, by implication, the administration on everything from climate change, which the previous governor did, but also abortion, uh, separation of kids from their families at the border. I mean, issue abortion, you know, issues that are, you know, rule resonating in California, but also, I'm sure, get the notice, uh, get, get attention from, from the administration as well. And it's hard to have it both ways. I think. Okay. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, our conversation with Bay Area progressive activist Kimberly Ellis. She's running to be chair of the state Democratic Party. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with my partner in crime, Marisa Lagos. Today we're joined by a woman running again for chair of the California Democratic Party after narrowly losing a couple years ago. Kimberly Ellis, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we want to talk about how you got to where you are today running for this office. But I, I do want to go back. You you did, as we said, you, you ran a couple years ago. It was a very tight uh, bitter, I think it's fair to say, on both sides election. Um, why do you want to run again? Why are you Why are you running for party chair? Yeah, uh, I'm running today for the same reason I ran two years ago, and that is because I want to do the job. I want to do the work of this party uh, to help build and grow and expand this party, uh, and to have this party 
do more, be more, and mean more in people's everyday lives. What does that mean? What does that look like? I mean, if you're chair. Yeah. So that means recognizing and appreciating the fact that our California Democratic Party is uh, one of the most powerful electoral machines in this country. Uh, We elect Democrats, (laughs) and we do a very good job of that. Uh, And recognizing that in this moment, uh, there is a yearning and a desire for us to also do the party building that uh, that the party has not been doing a lot of. And in fact, uh, it's one of the reasons why so many organizing groups like Indivisible, Our Revolution, Swing Left, Sister District uh, have thrived uh, and popped up is because the the party has uh, been absent in, in many places in terms of doing the party building, connecting the dots as to how politics touches every aspect mm-hmm. of life, uh, creating in many respects um, a home for people to donate their time, talent, and treasure. Do you see yourself still as an outsider? Um, or do you think the calculations have sort of changed over the last two years? You're not going to surprise yeah. me this time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it depends on who you ask. Yeah. Uh, it's really it's really interesting because uh, two years ago, uh, I was uh, sort of characterized as an outsider by those in, uh, who would be considered the establishment. Uh, but to the sort of uh, outsiders, or uh, and as was the case two years ago, the, the Bernie Kratz, right. uh, I was the establishment. Right. So as a as a as a former Hillary Clinton supporter. Right. So I found myself sort of in this gap space, if you will, and decided, uh, quite honestly, that that was for me probably the best place to be. Uh, Doesn't that get to, though, some of the challenges within the party? Because it's grown so much in California. And so you don't just have one flavor of, say, liberal Democrats. You have folks who are running in the Central Valley, in more purple districts where agriculture is a concern. You have people winning seats in Orange County. Like, does that make it a little harder to lead? Uh, No, actually, I think it makes it easier uh, for someone like me. So uh, I grew up as a military kid. Uh, My father was an officer in the Army, and that meant every three years we moved around and had Mm -hmm. a different home. And so I've visited and lived in almost every part of this country. Uh, And having uh, visited uh, nearly every part of this state, now twice, uh, (laughs) I can tell you that you can find every red state, every purple state, every swing state right here in California. That's really true. And so being able to connect with people on issues around things that touch all of our lives, regardless of the color or the hue of the county or part of this country you live in is really what this is about. It's about moving beyond even party ID. What do you think is the fundamental message that will work in each of those kinds of places in California? Or do you have to really tailor it to where you are? I think you have to tailor it. And I think that starts by listening. Yeah. Uh, I was in the Central Valley in Fresno last night uh, and um, had a couple questions, one by some uh, uh, veterans who were also seniors, uh, and uh, one question in particular uh, from some millennials. And they said, you know, what are you as chair going to do? What is the party going to do in order to to reach us and to bring us in? And I said, I'm going to, you know, answer your question with a question. And I'm going to say, what would you like to see this party do? What would uh, it look like to have a party that cares about you, that listens to you? Because I believe that one of the biggest uh, uh, things that we must start to do um, is to listen to people more and to see then how we use the the influence, the power, the connections to to help make their lives better. Well, you mentioned your dad was in the Army. Um, I know you were born in Chattanooga, ten- Tennessee. And I think you guys moved back there eventually with your mom or – 
No, so my mom moved back there. Oh, okay. I, I ended up uh, after high school. I went to high school in Puerto Rico. Oh wow! Uh, and best experience of my life uh, going to the uh, to the beach on uh, field trips. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I ended up in uh, Florida, uh, Jacksonville, Florida after after graduating, and then she moved back. To- so did you? I mean, growing up in that context, in a military context, moving around so much. Um, it, it, was it a surprise to you later that you a ended up in politics and be on the left side of the spectrum, or was your family pretty liberal? Yeah. Well, I would say uh, I I consider myself to have first gotten politicized in third grade, uh, and I was uh, in elementary school at the Presidio in here San in San Francisco. Francisco. Yes, uh, and so we had to do a report on our uh, favorite political uh, figure, and I um, happened upon Shirley Chisholm, nice. which is where Unbought Unbossed came yes. from. Most people <laughs> don't know it was her campaign slogan when she ran for president in 1972, and so I would say I, I've been a sort of uh, politically active and engaged since. Since third grade, I was uh, class rep all the way uh, through school. I was uh, uh, high school uh, president of the student body in Puerto Rico, involved in student government in college. What was your slogan there in Puerto Rico? Do you remember? Yes, it was just do it. And with the with the Nike swoosh. <laughs> and I uh, remember making the little tags and the signs, uh, uh, you know, just do it, vote for Kimmy. Uh-huh. I went by Kimmy back then. Uh, but... Um, because my father was an officer, we weren't allowed to be politically uh, active. And so I don't remember having one conversation around our dinner table about politics. And so when I graduated from college, I didn't know how to transfer my activism into the real world. So I did what I think a lot of people do. I, I went to law school. Okay. <laughs> and um, that didn't sort of s- scratch the itch. And so I ended up volunteering on a campaign. And my name was passed along to this organization called Emerge California. So We you want to get to that in a second. Yeah. But I, I want to ask you about your brother, also, Victor, mm-hmm. uh, who I know was, I think, seven years younger than you yeah. and played linebacker. He was quite a good linebacker for the University of Alabama. and tied. <laughs> Crimson Tide and, and and died of a very aggressive form of cancer, a rare form of cancer. When I think he was 28, you must have been 34 or 5 or yep. something. Yeah, t- tell us about Victor. Yeah, he was my best friend. Um, his funeral was the first funeral I really ever went to. And um, uh, watching him die, I watched him take his last breaths when he was, um, um, when he was sick. And um, it was actually through his death that really gave me the courage to live my life out loud and with purpose. And um, watching the nearly 1,000 people come to his funeral from all over the country, including uh, one of his nurses who had just met him a few days before and said that she was so touched by um, his spirit and his um, um, positive energy that she just felt she needed to be there. What was it about his illness and and the funeral even that that gave you that courage? Yeah, watching uh, the courage with which he faced death. Um, we, you know, he was, in addition to being a, an incredible athlete and an incredible human being, uh, was, you know, didn't drink, didn't smoke on the Dean's list, just an incredible, uh, incredible human being. And so, um, 
understanding how one might feel um, in terms of it being an unfair, you know, situation or sentence, if you will, of getting this rare form of cancer at such a young age. Um, I really appreciated uh, how he how he faced death and 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 how he how he died and and also how he lived and to hear the stories of people talk about uh, his character and and how he touched them um, really really transformed me. I mean, it sounds like your family was already pretty close. Did that bring you guys even closer? You have another brother, right? I do. Yeah, Patrick, uh, who is in uh, Houston, Texas. It, I think, you know, uh, losing a sibling is is an incredibly hard thing to do. And as a mother myself, I can't imagine losing uh, one of my kids. And so definitely it brought us all together. But it also, I think, in many respects, um, reminded us just how um, precious and short life can be. And so to not waste any time um, finding your purpose and then and then and then living that out loud. So how long ago was that? 11 years. 11 years. So at that point, you'd gone to law school. Were you in the Bay Area at that point? Yeah. So actually, um, I, we buried him on May. Uh, I'm sorry, March 25th of 2008. I came home uh, about three and a half weeks later finished the final interview for a job as the national affiliate director at Emerge America. And the rest is history. Wow. So what had you done prior to Emerge? I worked for the state of California at uh, the Department of Public Health. Uh, I worked for uh, Bayer Healthcare uh, and uh, several other uh, private companies. So I've worked in uh, for the state government uh, and the private industry, nonprofit sector uh, across the board. Just a reminder, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today is Kimberly Ellis. She's running for chair of the California Democratic Party. And that election takes place June 1st at the party convention right here in San Francisco. You mentioned Emerge, uh, which, yeah, uh, of course, helps uh, women get elected, uh, like yourself, perhaps. Uh, what did you learn from Emerge that you're using in your campaign? Yeah, oh, it's uh, so much. Um, first and foremost, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. <laughs> uh, the um, the ability to, to run and to win or lose uh, with grace uh, and to... Um, I think one of the biggest lessons, and I would say it's it's particularly important in, in this uh, time, um, is the importance of helping other women, the importance of reaching back and pulling uh, other women up uh, and supporting other women. And I think we as a society and as a culture won't start to see more women elected until we start, A, seeing more women run, and B, start seeing more women support other women up. Uh, over uh, over men. Well, and that's one thing we hear um, is, you know, that women have to be asked to run, that they need that support, that they might lose the first time. I mean, anybody might lose the first time. But I wonder, um, was it after working in, at Emerge for some time before you ran in this party race a couple of years ago, was it weird being on the other side of that coin, like not just being the advisor, but being the candidate? Yeah, you know, I was uh, happily going along doing my Emerge thing. And uh, I like... Most women who run for office was recruited, was asked to run, uh, and uh, at first uh, scoffed at it and said, no, absolutely not. But then after giving it some thought and really around the uh, the question of not so much what does the chair do, but rather what could the chair do, mm. uh, that I decided to to embark upon the journey. Um, I wonder, you, you said a moment ago that one of the things you learned and, and one of the things women who go through Emerge learn is the, the importance of losing with grace. And I'm guessing that there are some people who are listening who will say, well, that's not what happened when she ran for party chair. It was a very close, bitter election. 
it, you, you didn't concede, it, yeah. and I, I don't know if you've conceded now, but uh, <laughs> you haven't. So, and there were people still to this day who feel the election was stolen. Um, so, how do you square that? Yeah, well, I think it depends on who you ask and their definition of grace. Uh, as someone who uh, certainly lived all over the uh, the country, I claim the South as my home. I'm a I'm a Southern belle. I was raised by my grandma, who was the matriarch of our family, uh, who taught me uh, to uh, to treat others uh, like I want it to be treated, to uh, remember my manners, to uh, to lead not just with my head but with my heart, and to always tell the truth. And for me, um, having grace means um, not being afraid to ask for transparency, for honesty, for integrity in everything we do, including and especially elections. And what we did uh, in challenging uh, the election was nothing more than to utilize the system that was in place as per our bylaws. We went through a three-step process, which was dictated to us in terms of structure and timeline by the party. Uh, And we followed that along. And when I got to the end of that process in late August, I had a decision to make. And that decision was, do you continue it? Do you sue the party Mm -hmm. Uh, or do you walk away? And even though the decision was not what we had hoped for, um, I chose to walk away. So Eric Bauman, who you lost to and then resigned last year um, after allegations of inappropriate behavior with staff members and, and, and uh, drinking issues, like it, it seems to me when this happens, because we've seen a lot of sort of Me Too moments in recent years with high profile people, that in hindsight, people go, oh, yeah, like everyone knew that. Um, during the race, there had been some bizarre allegations that came up. And, and at the time, you said, no, those are a smear. But I don't know, like in hindsight, do you have any regrets about not, I don't know, I don't know what you could have done. But like, was that something like, were you surprised? And do you think in hindsight, okay, that was totally predictable that this would have been how he ended. Well, to be perfectly honest, the uh, the rumors about uh, abuse uh, were rampant and had been for years. Uh, certainly, uh, me as a candidate and our campaign did not feel it was appropriate for us to uh, perpetuate those rumors mm-hmm. or, uh, uh, ev- you know, tell tell people stories. Um there were numerous people who approached our campaign with with stories and accusations, and we encouraged them to seek counsel, uh, but made it clear that as a campaign we could not. But I will, I will, I can say for a fact that there were people within both party leadership and our elected leadership who knew uh, about that be the behavior. How confident are you that since then uh, the party has made changes both to make sure that there is more transparency, that the election is fair? And that the outcome is one that everyone can have faith in. How confident are you about that? If I'm being honest, um, not very confident. Uh, there are requests that we have um, submitted to the party, uh, including uh, having a final certified list of delegates, which we have not received. So the list of delegates that that we were given as the, the delegates who could vote has not been certified. Hmm. So, do, do you think they're afraid of you? I mean, what, like, what, what is it that makes, you know, that... It is there is why isn't there more cooperation with someone who came so close who has a following in the party like what what do you make of it yeah I mean just in the spirit of complete honesty uh, I am a black woman uh, in a in a world that uh, does not have a lot of people who look like me and so um, visually uh, I represent a kind of change that a lot of people are uncomfortable with can we talk briefly we, we only have like four minutes left but I want to ask you um, 
what reforms you want to see in the party in terms of endorsements and campaign finance? There's been bills introduced in recent years that says, you know, you shouldn't be able to give unlimited contributions to the parties who can then pass those on to candidates. I know you talked last time about the endorsement process. Like, what are the kind of key things that you would want to go in and sort of tackle right away? Yeah, well, I will tell you that uh, there are four main priorities that we've laid out. Uh, we are, uh, you know, 18 months away from uh, pr- a presidential election that really uh, is probably the most important one in our lifetime. So for us, it is it is four very uh, concrete things. It is first and foremost dealing with the toxic culture that is rampant within this party. I've spent the last several months traveling up and down this state. There are dozens and dozens of other similar stories of abuse, of bullying, harassment, and retaliation. Uh, that behavior, which is no different than the behavior we see coming out of the person currently occupying the White House is a cancer in this party and it is killing this party and it must be rooted out. I intend to do that. Uh, So addressing that. uh, Number two, holding on to the electoral wins from 2018. We had some incredible wins uh, down throughout the valley on the legislative side and uh, throughout Orange County on the congressional side that helped take back the White House. We need to hold on to those. Those wins were not because of the state party or the local parties alone. It was working in conjunction with those outside organizing groups like Indivisible, Our Revolution, Swing Left. Um, Thirdly, making sure we have our house in order to welcome in this presidential primary, making sure all presidential uh, contenders have a, a fair level playing field. One of the biggest lessons from 2016 is how destructive it can be if our party is seen to have a thumb on the scale. So ensuring fairness for everyone is important. Uh, and then finally, doing our part to help take back the White House in 2020. I'm wondering, you know, you, you the, the party is so dominant in California. Every statewide office, huge majorities in the legislature. The governor, obviously, is a Democrat. And yet you're talking about a toxic culture within the party apparatus. Uh, does, does the party, how big a hindrance will that be? Because it hasn't seemed to be a hindrance in terms of winning elections up to yeah, now. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, you... In, in that instance, we should really look to the statistics with respect to how people are, are registering. And last year was the very first time ever in California's history where more people registered as no party preference declined to state or independent than they did as Democrat. That is not just a California trend. That is a national trend. And so more people are choosing, A, to not associate with this party and, B, to spend their time, talent and treasure not in this party, but in outside groups like Indivisible, Our Revolution. Swing left. So if we hope to continue winning in California, uh, use this as an opportunity to create blueprints for how we get back to the business of winning elections nationally, we would heed that trend and really start to connect with people and, and, and demonstrate the relevance of this party in people's everyday lives. All right. Kimberly Ellis, thank you so much for coming in. And we'll be covering that convention yeah, in a couple weeks. We'll see <laughs> what the outcome Francisco. is. All right. Thanks thank so you. much. Well, that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, and our engineer today is Rob Spate. KQED's leadership team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinny Tong. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. That is a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. We'll see you next time, everybody. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. 
Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.